Hey everyone, big news. Up Next in Commerce is now available for sponsorship. If you love this show and you, or maybe your company, or someone in your network that you know may want to reach an audience of supremely smart e-commerce leaders, then reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org and I'll give you all the juicy details around what our strategic partnerships look like. Email me at stephanie at mission.org and let's chat. I think you can spend so much time and money trying to create this temple to technology, like everything seamlessly integrated on the platform side. But if your message is consistent, then you can actually let the tools do what they do and your customer journey will be consistent. In the world of e-commerce, one of the biggest challenges the pros come across is selling something to a customer who physically cannot experience the product at the time of purchase. For Dimitri Siegel, that was one of the hurdles he has had to overcome as vice president of global brand at Sonos. Dimitri cut his teeth in the world of e-commerce at Urban Outfitters and then moved on to work for Patagonia. And while the amount of products he was selling was reduced with each move, the challenge of building a platform that could connect with target buyers remained. On this episode of Up Next in Commerce, Dimitri explains all of the lessons he's learned in facing those challenges, including the importance of culture, what a successful brand and website redesign looks like, and what some of the most important metrics are when you're judging the success of your e-commerce platform. Enjoy this episode. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. Respond quickly to changing customer needs with flexible e-commerce connected to marketing, sales, and service. Deliver intelligent commerce experiences your customers can trust across every channel. Together, we're ready for what's next in commerce. Learn more at salesforce.com slash commerce. Dimitri, how's it going? It's going as well as it can. Uh, I'm enduring. How about yourself? It's going well. It's bright and sunny. And even though we can't go anywhere, at least we get to hang out here, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I'd love to hear a little bit, Dimitri, about your role at Sonos. Um, what is your title? And if you can give me a little bit of background on what you do at Sonos. Sure. I'm the vice president of global brand for Sonos. It means I oversee all of our brand, creative and marketing, product marketing, I oversee all of our digital experience and physical retail experience. So our website and our physical store displays as well and marketing operations. And so kind of like all the touch points that you have with our brand, except for the product itself. Got it. And how did you get into that role? Because it seems very wide ranging, whereas a lot of people are like, I only control the website or, you know, I just have this one vertical. It seems like you have a lot under your purview. So how did you move into that role? I had kind of a crazy pivot in my career early on. I was at Urban Outfitters and I was the digital creative director. And this was about 15 years ago. It was like very early days for e-commerce. And my boss left and we were interviewing people to run DTC. And there just was nobody really that had much more experience than I did. And so I kind of made the youthful, the dumb youthful move of being like, hey, I think I could do this job. And um, my boss at the time, Ted Marlowe was like, all right, well, we'll give it a shot. And um, so I went from really running like creative and the website product to running the whole business. And they were so good at operations and merchandising and finance and all these things that they felt like they could teach that to me 
And so I just had this opportunity to run a PL and and run operations. Um, and that gave me this sort of balanced background between those two things. And everywhere I've been, I've sort of had that balance of like the e-commerce business and creative side. And it just came out of basically someone taking a risk on me early on in my career. And uh, yeah, it's been an interesting, interesting journey. Yeah, that's awesome. Really fun to hear about someone betting big on you like that. Was there anything where when you jumped into that role, you're like, I actually don't know anything about this. And what did you do in those moments? If so, yeah, what are some examples of that? Oh my God, so much. I mean, at that time, merchandising, like I looked at everything as like what would be beautiful. And so understanding like this one might be beautiful, but it's low margin and nobody's buying it. Uh, that was an important thing to learn. <laughs> and I also, I remember really early on, like in site merchandising saying like, oh, look, you know, we should put this in the upper left-hand corner because it'll sell more. Or, you know, I think we should put this in the upper left-hand corner. Look, it's, you know, my favorite product or whatever. And I remember the merchandiser at the time going, you know, I could sell a lot of old flip-flops if we put them in the upper left-hand corner too. Like it's not, you're not some like merchandising genius. Um, (laughs) So understanding that just like learning the way that shopping actually happens in that medium and the mechanics of it, very humbling from that point of view. But I think like having a learner's mentality is important at any stage in your career. I still have that feeling like there's so much I don't understand. There's so much to learn. And most often, honestly, from the people who report to you or who are in your own organization, I think being promoted young into that role, I had to very quickly get comfortable with like the fact that people who worked in my team knew more than I did and just being humble about that and learning from them. So that's part of what makes it fun to go to work. So that's great. Have you seen your role at Sonos change since when you started because of the environment or consumer buying behaviors to where it is now? And if so, what are the biggest changes that you've seen? Um, you know, I came in early on to really get the digital side of the business going faster. And we did a lot of the sort of fundamental blocking and tackling of like replatforming, redesigning the website. But I think quickly realized that like this is really a holistic business and a multi-channel business. And what's happening, you know, in the product marketing, for example, has just a huge impact on all the channels, including e-commerce. And some of the the stuff in in this field is very like optimization oriented. And it's actually not as impactful sometimes as like what you're naming a product or defining the core benefits of that product that would actually help it in every channel. So my role has definitely gravitated more to the general brand and product messaging overall and how that comes to life in in e-com is like the harshest test of it, like the best place to test that, but it's not the sole focus anymore. How do you think about bringing a product that's, you know, you really need to experience nice speakers or, you know, great food or something like that. How do you bring that experience to life on a website? It is challenging. I mean, the core benefit of Sonos, you know, sound is invisible, so you can't see it. And if you're listening on a laptop or on a phone, you're not going to experience the quality of sound that we go for Mm -hmm. and that we create. But really, I think every product has that challenge. I mean, I like to think that Sonos is more complicated and more difficult, but I think you always have to just be really, really rigorous and relentless about what the value is for the customer and then illustrate that in words and pictures like in a very slavish way. And 
I think it has to be like a pop song. Like it can't, there's no guitar solo. There's no like, you know, 15 part, middle part. It's got to be really to the point and like verse, chorus, verse, chorus. And I think that rigor is really, it's, the, it's true for us probably more so because it is an invisible, ethereal, emotional kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But I think it applies to just about any product. Yep. Yeah, I agree. One thing I saw on your website that I don't know if it just hit home with me, but I thought it really made me think about the experience was when I was scrolling, I saw the speaker on the page and it had little sound bars like bounce off the speaker. And it made me be like, oh, cool. Like, and it gets you kind of in that music mode and just thinking about like, I wonder how that sounds now. Was that, I'm assuming that was intentional. And if so, was that your project? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so we actually have an entire style guide of how to show sound and how to talk about sound. What are the words that you use? What are the circles that emanate from the speaker? And is this stereo sound or are we showing the tuning of the speaker? And our brand design team, you know, I think in some of the ways that, oh God, this is a random story, but I remember going to a creative summit for McDonald's and they had like an entire session on like the Coke and how to make the Coke look like delicious and thirst quenching. And then there was like the burger session. And like that sound is that for us. Like we have to like be really consistent and relentless again about like, how do you make this thing look like it sounds great? And there's actually different mm -hmm. ways we do that. So in above the line media, for example, we use this very bold like waves of sound coming out of the speaker that really grab your attention when we're doing an education piece, like what you saw on the website, we want to be more articulated about like what the sound's actually doing in that moment. And then we have to package that up as a toolkit so that marketers all over the world and partners can show it in the same consistent way. Got it. And it's through that repetition and that consistency that I think you actually build a sound brand. Yeah. Very cool. And how did you come up with that style guide? Was it a huge project that took a lot of buy-in and everyone had a different idea? And then did you have to train your retail partners or other people of how to interpret it? Um, I think everything always starts with listening and listening to your partners and like understanding what they're, what they're actually going to use basically and what they really need. And so the style guide was a, sort of like a culmination of a lot of projects where we would have conversations about like, God, I can't see the speaker in this shot. Like I wish there was some way to call attention to it or, you know, the sound of this speaker is so you know, you have five speakers in this soundbar, but like, I can't really tell that from what you're showing me. So like hearing a lot of that and then going like trying different things and saying, well, this really worked or like this didn't work and then compiling it ultimately into a style guide. But we didn't set out like with a white sheet of paper. It's more like listening to the needs and solving the problems of the marketing organization and the go-to-market organization overall. Very cool. And I think I saw you all just did a whole brand redesign with the colors and all that. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because I don't see many brands doing that. It's usually like I picked my corporate palette and it's blue and it has to be blue for the next hundred years. Like, how did you think about changing that? Yeah, this redesign was uh, the coolest one I've ever been a part of because we we were able to do the site and the brand redesign at the same time. So often those are like two separate projects and maybe even two separate teams where you have the brand design team that goes and comes up with this really cool, like hip, like exciting brand identity. And then you have this web design team that's like, I can't use any of that. Like, I don't know how I'm supposed to get that to work on the website because we're all one team. We were able to really work on it simultaneously. So we would do some 
brand exploration, then we'd be like, okay, make the product detail page with that. Okay, like settle on some core messaging. Does that work on the homepage? And go back and forth between, you know, web design and brand design like simultaneously. And just have a really good team that is really collaborative. And we all had that mission in the end of like, we want you to see an advertisement, go to the website and have it be totally consistent. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't want these disconnects where like the ad sells you something and then you get to the website and you're like, what kind of, <laughs> I thought this was that kind of company, but it's this kind of company. Yep. And so that process was really digitally driven. But a lot of times if you just approach a read, like if you just redesign the website, you don't get that sort of high level brand thinking and strategy mm-hmm. to it and communication hierarchy and stuff. And, and also you just don't get the, like the sizzle of like brand to it. You sort of can get a very functional thing and we're a premium brand and we command a premium price point. And I think like if people show up at your site and it's like, you know, it looks like an out of the box thing, then they're like, I don't know if this is really, if they're really going to deliver on the experience side. So mm-hmm. it was really cool to balance all of those. And then, as far as the question related to um, color in our brand identity, our product is really black and white. That's like the design philosophy of the product itself is that it's really bold, high contrast, black and white. And our brand identity was the same way. It was very bold, black and white. And what ended up happening was as you couldn't really see the product because like everything was black and white. Oh, yeah. Yep. And then also our categories, all of a sudden, everybody was just really severe black and white. And so we just, we didn't have a great context to show the product. We weren't standing out in the market. And so, you know, our brand is more about the lifestyle of like the experience of your home, you know, having high quality experiences with music and content. And so once we started bringing the color in, it just, the product could really pop out. Um, And also just our brand looked really different um, in the category. So we didn't choose a brand color. Like these colors will keep changing over time and they're more mm-hmm. in a digital kind of almost a seasonal fashion kind of usage. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely feels right for our our company and our and our product. Yeah. No, that that's a great way of thinking. Are there any best practices you learned when, you know, trying to work with multiple teams to update the brand and update the website? Any do's and do nots or places where you're like, oh, this went wrong, but this went really well and yeah, any guidance for other companies who are listening right now? Like, maybe that's a good idea to do both. I mean, you really have to build trust in your team. And it's about culture, I think, first. You know, we couldn't have done that kind of project four years ago. I think, like, our culture is at a place where we're, we trust each other. We're collaborative. We have a shared goal in mind. We're willing to, like, be honest with each other about what's working, what's not working. So I think you have to have the right culture to do that. I think also like I was a, when I very first got out of college, I taught public school. Uh, I was an oh, art cool. teacher for a couple of years. And what grade? It was junior high and high school. Okay. That's kind of a hard age to teach. They can be little meanies. I was anyways. I was a meanie. I mean, <laughs> when you have 30 kids in a New York City public school and you have no carrots and no sticks, I think what I learned from that experience is just like you have to externalize the goal. Like it can't be personal and it it has to actually be written down and be agreed to as like, this is what we're going to do that what's on this piece of paper. It's not about me and it's not about you. It's about like what's on this piece of paper. And I think that was helpful with this redesign. We just had a really shared sense of purpose that wasn't like the brand team's agenda or 
the product marketing team's agenda. It was like an external third thing that everybody was working towards. I like that. And I think that's really important. Yeah, no, that's great. Because then if not, you definitely got teams kind of battling it out and competing and trying to push agendas. And it's kind of like putting it on a higher authority of, well, this is what we all agreed to. And this is where we're headed. Not, not towards either one way. That's great. Yeah. Were there any tools or technologies that you utilized or implemented that really helped with updating the website and updating the brand? I don't think the technology played a huge role in it. I, I mean, like Google Slides. We use like Google <laughs> Google Slides a lot. Tried and true. Yep. <laughs> but um, I think that the tools of the trade are pretty consistent. I mean, when you ask it that way, like broadly speaking, you know, Zoom, Google Slides and Slack have really en- enabled us to collaborate with different agencies and with different teams, often in different locations. And because we were already working that way, like this current disruption is pretty seamless for us in terms of how we work. Um, Mm -hmm. It definitely posed a challenge in terms of our typography. Like, you know, that's a huge thing, obviously, that drives design. It drives like my point of view on design. And when you're working in a digital medium, it's really different. That's actually one of the places that I think brand design and digital design kind of cross, get crisscrossed is like, Mm-hmm. Brand design is generally like this print-driven medium where you can be pixel perfect on every single bit of typography and digital is just it's just much more dynamic and you have less control over every application. So I think that's one where you know we had to like carve out enough time for the digital team to solve those problems. Often you like you throw over this PDF and you're like, this is how I want it to look. I want it to look exactly like this. And they're like, well, that's gonna take some custom work because Type doesn't really set up like that, you know, in a browser. So we were, I think, good about like leaving enough time to actually do that work. Very cool. Yeah, that's great. And how did you think about measuring success of the redesign or what's the impact been since you launched it? Our business is doing great. I think in my experience with redesigns or replatforms, there's usually a dip when you first launch and then, you know, it normalizes. I actually see that a lot in product reviews and app updates. And it's, it's something I wish someone had told me when I was younger, because I used to freak out in the first like couple of weeks yeah. when you launch something new. But what we've seen is a lot of people understand the product better. Like that was our big goal. It was like people still were saying they didn't understand how the system worked or how the products worked. And so the customer understanding was like a big goal of ours. And there were things where, you know, design choices really helped that. And then there were things where design choices didn't help that. So for example, like one of the ways we did image galleries when we first launched, didn't make it really super duper clear how to click to the next image. And so we found that we did like Mm -hmm. user testing all through like before launch and after launch. And that single change, for example, like had a huge impact on like customers understanding of the product, like clicking through the whole gallery of images or like, you know, finding the support link on the site, for example, like we kind of buried that in original design and then found that's like really important because, you know, if someone needs support, they really want to find it and they don't want to have a hard time finding it. Yep. So we're seeing like, it's been a while, obviously, since we launched it, but all the product launches have gone really well. We're able to like the cognition and understanding of how the products work together is way up. So it's, it's going well. That's cool. How do you find out what the customers are struggling with? Like when you're saying the support link was too low, like how did you know that was a problem? I mean, it's a mix of quantitative and qualitative. So you're looking at like behaviors and like, wow, people are like stuck on this page or they're 
clicking on this part of the page more and then qualitative of just asking them what their experience is as they go through. So saying, all right, we want you to go to the site and buy a Sonos One and then, you know, kind of narrate your experience as you're going through it. Mm -hmm. And that's where you kind of get some of the specific things that you wouldn't see in behavioral, which is like why someone is doing what they're doing is just as important as what's happening. Got it. Very cool. And have you updated the technology behind your website in the past couple of years or have you stuck with one thing? Like if someone was coming in and building a big e-commerce store now, is there anything you would recommend to, you know, keep up with customer demand and inventory and yeah, everything that it takes to run an e-commerce store? I mean, I think that is one of the things that's changed so much in my time in e-commerce. I think, you know, 15 years ago, 12 years ago, it was really a life or death decision about like, what's your e-com platform? Like, you're going to be stuck with this. It's going to take millions of dollars and years to implement. So like a lot of your success or failure was based on like decisions about technology. I think that the tech has gotten a lot better. It's gotten a lot more accessible from a price point perspective. Like implementation's gone a ton easier. It's still painful to switch. So like switching costs are real. Mm -hmm. But I would say like you're so much better off starting today than even two years ago. Yep. The platforms are super accessible. And in a way, I mean, I think a lot of the skill set has actually become automated and commoditized to like, you know, search optimization or even a lot of the sort of marketing tactics that drive e-commerce, like that used to be a real differentiator. If you were analytically driven marketer, like you could get an edge, but mm -hmm. a lot of times now you're better off just going with the platform automation on these things. So mm -hmm. I think like my advice would be like the thing that always you forget is the content management piece. Like I think that's, you, you can launch with a great website, but Every day you're going to want to update it and launch new products and launch new features. So really understanding like how you're going to make new templates and how you're going to add new content is the thing that generally people overlook. Got it. Yeah. How do you think about that intersection of your content management system, your CRM, your underlying commerce platform? How do you think about those three together? Do they work together in sync or are they kind of separate entities? <laughs> You know, I'm going to be very unpopular probably for this opinion, but I think you can spend so much time and money trying to create this temple to technology, like everything seamlessly integrated on the platform side. What I've learned is that, or I feel like this has changed since I got into this business, but is that if your message is consistent, then you can actually let the tools do what they do and your customer journey will be consistent. And the more that you focus on consistency of your message and your customer journey, basically, like, like your customer communications, you can allow the different technologies to do what they do best and be less obsessive about connecting every single point of customer data. Now, I mean, that's also relevant to our business. Like we have 10 products, you know, mm -hmm. if you're Amazon or Wayfair and you're, you have just infinite complexity in your assortment, like that was more the Urban Outfitters experience. We had 20,000 styles and we launched 7,000 styles a week. And so it was, there was this huge, like, how do I connect the right product to the right person challenge? But for a lot of businesses, you're dealing with a finite product set. And as long as you're consistent in how you're showing those products and what you're saying about them, you can let your retargeting vendor go crazy. You can let your CRM program go crazy. It's like, because it's all going to add up to the same story in the end. So I think that I often feel like people spend more money trying to like 
back of house stuff than they do on the customer. And I always try to look at like that split of like, are we spending money on the things that the customer can see? Or are we spending money on ourselves to make ourselves feel cool about the systems that we have and just balancing those things? Is it very different with a platform that has, like you said, a huge catalog versus only 10 products? And is there a different way you would handle, you know, an Urban Outfitters model when you were there versus at Sonos? Yeah, I mean, it's, it is really different. The three big brands I worked with are Urban Outfitters, Patagonia, and Sonos. And each time I've gone to a smaller and smaller assortment because it's such a pain in the ass to have a big assortment that I was like, I just want to get to a smaller assortment. You're going to be down to just one product soon. Just, that's all Dimitri sells, just one thing. That's my dream. Live the dream. No, it's it's really different because like all the tricks of merchandising, people have been shopping since the Roman Forum, right? It's like a very human experience to like wander around and find the thing that reflects your sense of self and choose it over the other thing and buy the middle price point because it's not too expensive. And all that stuff is like super innate to people. And so I think when you have a big assortment, you have a lot of products to play those games with. This is something new. So like you should look over here because it's new or this is going fast. So you should look over here. With with Sonos, it's very much about like getting people to understand the experience and get it that it's like you can mix and match all these speakers. Like you can buy one or you can buy three and you can move them around their house. And they need to understand that gestalt much more than like that's more important than them picking one speaker and having a box shipped to their house. Yep. They might yeah. like get that idea and they might buy something at Amazon or at Best Buy, but if they get that concept, they're a super high value customer for us. That's more margin. It's a better business for us to be in. So a lot of what high product count sites are about like getting you to like a decision and to put something in your basket and check out. And for a lot of businesses and a lot of DTC businesses that have these narrow assortments, it's much more about communicating the gestalt and the value of the product. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I'm sure once someone buys one, two, three, then it's like you're going to, you know, that lifetime value of that customer is bigger because they're going to come back. I know I'm looking right now. We have our Sonos speaker. Hey, right right next to me. But I don't know. I mean, we have a couple in our house and all around the studio, but I don't know if I'm getting the full value of it because... The only songs that seem to play on our speaker are Old MacDonald and Happy and You Know It for my two-year-old all day long. So I think there's a bug. I need to send it back and get that updated hopefully soon. I'm sure you have the same problem. It is fun listening to your kids though, isn't it? Yeah. I love that aspect of it. Just like sharing music with them and like dance parties. And yep. we're so often with our headphones on and our like little phone world. But like having it be something that you can share with, with the kids is really fun. Yeah. But I also enjoy that you can like, I'll turn off the kitchen, <laughs> just leave the mm-hmm. living room running and be like, you go have your dance party out there. I can't <laughs> listen to that song another time. Totally. So if you're thinking about defining success for an e-commerce platform, what do you consider successful? What metrics do you look at? How do you think about that? Um, if I have to pick one. Yep. Only one. Or you can pick two, but stack rank them. Oh, man. I mean, the ultimate one to me is margin per session. Okay. That's like, it's not the easiest one to get at, but like, I think traffic is really like a tough one because it's driven often by, you know, an email or like it can be driven by bad things or you can, you know, have a bunch of crappy traffic that's unqualified. So like, great, you've done this marketing campaign that's not converting. 
I think conversion, you can have people, again, like you could be converting on a sale product that doesn't generate a lot of revenue, profit for the company. And so I like per session because it just it corrects for traffic, basically. Mm-hmm. And then I like margin because it's like, it motivates you to like sell the high margin stuff and sell the high quality stuff. And those are generally like your best products and the things that bring people back and make them more high value customers. So that one's really, you know, when you're really in the weeds of it, like that's something that I look at. And then usually like you're designing a specific part of the site. And so step conversion is really helpful to look at. Did I get them to go from here to here? Because if I didn't, then I know they're not going to get to the final steps of the process. But mm-hmm. I think that in my role too, one of the things that's important is just a very high level business understanding of like margins are basically like what you can charge for the product is based on people's perceptions and perceptions of your brand. And mm-hmm. you have to dedicate a certain amount of time to just like faith in that. Yep. I mean, that's a pretty high level thing. Like I don't expect someone at a junior level or somebody who's responsible for like the day-to-day revenue of a particular category to get. But if you don't invest some of your development time and reinforcing premium, then you just, you're not going to be able to charge the margins. Yep. And so that's one that's a little more high level, but I think of the brand comes through in the margin. Got it. I think I just heard that Amazon's switching their algorithm to showcase higher margin items where before it was always based off of what they thought the customer would want to see first. How do you strike that balance between maybe showcasing higher margin products, you know, higher up? I mean, I know there's not many, but how do you think about that versus making sure the customer experience is what they want? Yes, it is less of a challenge with Sonos because we, our product philosophy is to make the fewest number of products possible for the most number of applications. So, you know, we only have a couple theater, home theater products. We only have a couple of music products and it's really about size of the room. But, you know, I think it's like, that's all like merchandising stuff. Like you sell 80% black, but you always show the color, you know, because it's going to excite someone and make them feel like the experience of wearing a great new jacket. Mm -hmm. And I think with sound, it's the same thing. Like you kind of want to get people emotionally invested in the experience of music, which is awesome. And just remind them like listening to music is great. And so that's like kind of the first thing that we try to lead with is just like what a great experience this is and reminding people that they have ears and like it's one of the only five senses they have and it can be really transporting. And so that generally is going to be more of our premium yep. products that do that. But then they're going to, you know, most people will buy the middle price point. That's just the rules, you know? Yeah, got it. Very cool. So to shift a little bit into the present day, the current environment, everything with COVID-19, do you guys see a lot of changes in your business right now with what's happening? Our business obviously is... uh we do a lot of business in physical retail and physical mm-hmm. retail is closed. And so that has really been disruptive to a lot of our partners and the people that we work with. And so on a personal level, it's just hugely um, impactful. And obviously, like we are really invested in those in our partners and the people that we work with. And so we're doing everything we can to like work with them. A lot of that volume has shifted to online channels. So most of our partners have a website and they're seeing that too. So their business is shifting online. Our direct consumer business is way up. So, I mean, I think that is a circumstantial behavior. Like people can't go to the store, stores are closed. Mm -hmm. That's a behavior. And I think, I feel like everybody is reevaluating everything 100%. 
and you have a complete clean slate as a brand, which kind of sucks if you have a great brand like ours. Like, yeah. you know, you're like, wait, remember like <laughs> yesterday you thought we were awesome. I think every brand has to like kind of start over and every action you take as a brand is going to be evaluated in this new reality. Like, do I need Sonos now? Like, do I need to travel now? What do I actually care about now? And I think that's an incredible, almost once in a lifetime experience. Mm-hmm. And anybody who's, especially young marketers and brand people going through this right now, like this is going to be the proving ground for the future. You know, the greatest brands of the last century were defined in the world wars and the brands that figured out how to endure the Great Depression and those disruptions they didn't do it by disappearing. Mm-hmm. They weren't created by going off radar. They figured out how to like stay in the public consciousness and to be relevant, even when people felt so horrible. So that's what I'm thinking about a lot right now and observing in the marketplace. Yeah, no, I agree. Definitely the clean slate idea of everything can change from this point forward is good to remember. Is there anything that you're like any big strategic projects or things that you're shifting either off your plate or new things you're starting to work towards based off of, you know, consumer buying behavior over the past couple months? Yeah, we really had to take a look at how our brand shows up as all companies and brands do. Mm -hmm. And we tend to be a very aspirational brand. And I think in this moment, it's really important to be personal and to be helpful and to just kind of tone it down a little bit and be real with people. And that's a big effort when you have a global marketing offense that spans like channels and geographies. And I just did an incredible job of realizing, accepting and taking action and is continuing to like learn and and adjust as we go through it. But I think we couldn't just show up the way we did two months ago. Mm -hmm. Everything you do has to in some way like be relevant to what's happening right now. And so it's touching everything. We're fortunate in that Our product roadmap hasn't changed. We haven't had to like take major programs off the board in terms of like not being able to fund them or whatever. And we're in an incredible like busy time right now. Like we have these two major launches coming up. So we were in the final mile of that work. And so we've just been proceeding, but then also like got to look at it through the lens of what's happening today. Is this going to seem off or is this going to seem weird to like be doing this right now and you have to pull the plug on it if it if it's going to you know not look good for the brand yeah completely agree it seems like it's also a good forcing function to make larger brands be more agile and make decisions quicker and be able to adjust to the market whereas before this i don't think there was that forcing function it's true i think it accelerates changes that were already happening so i think that's a situation like this like anything you were thinking of doing you're going to have the opportunity to do It's also just like a giant dumpster fire that you can throw almost anything on. (laughs) Like if you want to get rid of something like some old behavior or like I see brands that were really struggling with their perceptions. Again, they have this fresh moment. They can throw their old identity on the fire and like reintroduce themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like a once in a lifetime opportunity to do that. So definitely looking to take advantage of that as well. Like what do we want to shed? What do we want to get rid of? Because like, that's also part of the opportunity right now. Yeah, I think the brands that will experiment a bit with that as well and try something new, like you said, are going to be the ones that come out on top because I've seen quite a few come through my inbox that just have the same messaging. And I'm like, did you all just hire the same PR company to just be like, title, addressing COVID-19 <laughs> challenges? Like, here's what we're doing. And it's so 
cookie cutter. I'm like, I don't connect with that. But the brands who send unique messaging and you can tell they care, like you're talking about Sonos, like really showing that like you want to be there for them and the retail partners and the customers, that's very different. And yeah, you can start from scratch and have a whole different journey from here on out, depending on how you choose to handle it right now. Yeah. And I mean, some of that is luck of the draw. Like when we went into that process of self-examination, we're like, okay, our mission is to give people a really like deep, immersive experience of music and content in their home. It's like, that's still pretty relevant. You know, our goal is to like connect people to music as a way of like making their lives richer and escape. It's like, that's still pretty relevant. I mean, that's, it's not luck, but we're very lucky that that's what our product and what we stand for as a brand is Mm -hmm. still really relevant. And then it's more about like, okay, how do we talk about this in a way that's relevant? Mm -hmm. But I mean, look at Zoom, look at Portal, like products that are, you were sort of vaguely maybe aware of, all of a sudden are like Mm -hmm. completely relevant and useful in your day-to-day life. So you got to kind of be grateful um, if you happen to fall into one of those categories. Yeah. And the fact that there's so many new customers who are sitting on the sideline that are now coming on board. I mean, I, I'm thinking about for Zoom, it's my grandmother sent a link and was like, family Zoom call? I'm like, grandma, how'd you know about Zoom? And then my mom's like, oh yeah, I've been using that for teaching. And I'm like, I mean, we just got on Zoom not too long ago. That's what it seems like a very good time to be able to bring people into your product that you never had access to before. And you might never have had access to them unless something like this happened, maybe. I know. And I think this is one of the things that you won't go back from. Mm-hmm. It'll go back to some extent, like you won't have every school in the world doing school via Zoom, but yeah, it works really well. And you can be more remote. I think about like the follow-up doctor's appointment. You know, you go to a doctor and then you're supposed to come back a month later for a checkup and you drive an hour and you sit in the waiting room and then you go in for five minutes for them to be like, yeah, you're fine. It's like, yep. you're not going to do that yeah. anymore. You're just going to get on Zoom and be like, I'm fine. And they'll be like, cool, you're fine. Yep. Everybody's going to save a couple hours. And so I think there will be lasting effects on on our behaviors. And we're like not going to want to go back in every way to the way things were. Yeah. No, that's such a good point about doctor's office visits. I have two twins. They're seven weeks old now. And we went to their doctor's appointment and one of them had like a little baby acne or something. And they're like, well, don't come back for a follow-up. Just snap a picture of it and upload it into a Google Doc because we can't access pictures, but we can upload Google Docs and just do that. And I'm like, oh, from now on, then I'd rather just always do that. I don't want to come in here and expose my kids to maybe get sick from coming here. I'll just send you pictures and let me know. Yeah. And I mean, we're in the orbit of Los Angeles and we have our own traffic situations and there's so many trips that are just a total waste, you know? Mm -hmm. My wife's a a therapist and, you know, you couldn't really do psychotherapy or or therapy via Zoom, you know, it's not secure, but there's so much innovation happening in that space right now. It's like HIPAA compliance. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think less time in transit isn't a bad thing, you know, more time at home listening to Sonos. Sounds good. I know. Hey, I'm all about that. I'm definitely all about that. So when it comes to leadership, whether it's in times of change or just in general, like e-commerce leaders, what brands do you look to or people in the field that you you kind of like keep tabs on what they're doing? In terms of leadership, I mean, I think we have an amazing CEO. My boss is amazing. So I feel really fortunate that I don't have to look too far for leadership inspiration. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> that would suck if you were like, I, I don't know, I can't find it in my company. <laughs> so I have to go read a book. Of- <laughs> no one here. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but uh, man, leadership is one of those topics that the longer I work, the less I really feel like 
I understand it. Or, you know, yeah. it's, it's such a, um, a human one-to-one thing. And I think that what I like about our company and our CEO's approach is that you really focus on the culture overall and not like this meeting practice or this like latest book or whatever. It's just like this consistency of like how we treat each other is really the focus. And every time you go back to that, it actually helps you through a management challenge. And, you know, I think right now the thing is just to be really, really patient with with people and really understand how hard it is to do this. Like Mm -hmm. you got kids crying in the next room, you got like elderly parents that you can't go be with. Like it's emotionally really stressful and really hard. Yep. The best thing you can do as a coworker, forget being a leader, but like just as a coworker and a human is to just be like patient with people and to understand that their first reaction, they might be coming in like hot to a meeting because of something else entirely. Yeah. So I think that's really important. And then, yeah, I think like as far as brands and companies that I look to, there isn't like a, a single company. It's, it's interesting. Like we have these sort of index fund companies like Apple, Amazon, Google, like they do everything. They do every single kind of marketing. They do every single kind of branding. Like, so you can always find an example there of like, well, if you had unlimited money, this is what you would do. So I feel like that's kind of an interesting resource, you know, or if you have contacts there or whatever, like asking them questions and we do a lot of partnerships with them. So that's always a good test. I think, you know, whatever you're thinking about. I do look at, tend to look at smaller brands as far as just like what's Mm -hmm. happening and how you want to look as a brand. It's been really interesting, again, to see how fast everybody's adapted from a branding perspective. Every single ad right now is people on Zoom or healthcare workers. I think a month ago, I was like, I don't think people are going to be able to advertise like what will be in the ad, you know? And then like, it's just so fast, like everything's moving so fast. Oh, yeah. Every ad that's catered to me right now is sweatpants and work from home outfits, which are basically sweatpants that look like (laughs) jeans. I'm like, man, I mean, that's what I want to buy right now. This is great. This is one of the challenges, I think, for like consumers and for and for brands is that because everything is so automated, algorithm driven, you kind of get into these wormholes and like you get into this. I call it like a coffin of your own preferences. Like you can't see a way out of sweatpants. Like how am I going to get these sweatpants off my Instagram feed? And that's brands like, that's a challenge for us too. Like how do we break through that? Just self-reinforcing like, yeah, you probably are interested in sweatpants right now, but getting you to see something else is challenging, I think. Yeah, I agree. Have you like pulled the trigger on like on sweatpants at all? I almost, well... Before, I mean, I own many sweatpants. Thankfully, our <laughs> company is work from here a lot. So, you know, I don't have to always wear nice jeans. But I did pull the trigger on one pair of jegging nice. pants that look like jeans. So at least when I go on a walk, people think I'm fancy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the sweatshirt business right now. I am like, I get in these like shopping, really focused shopping things. But it's almost more like as a way to to work through some of like what's happening in the market. Like what's the customer's mindset? But I do it through my own, like, you know, like experimenting on myself kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's pretty extreme, like what's happening, like, you know, whole businesses Mm -hmm. that are 70% off, like, and at the same time, like the options are totally unlimited. And it's a time when you, I think you have to stay incredibly alert in the moment because it is moving so fast. You can't sort of, people want there to be a new normal, like 
oh, we did it. The new normal of marketing and e-commerce is this, but like, I don't think we're going to get there for a while. I think people, we're going to have to be on our toes, like adapting for months, you know, and that's going to be a challenge for the teams because the teams are like, we just did all this work and now we have to change it. Or like, what do you mean we don't want to show Zoom in any of our (laughs) comms anymore or something? But I think like the first, the fall into the Great Depression took four years. This took like four weeks, you know, like, yeah, this is just a hyper accelerated world we're living in and you got to stay alert. Yeah, completely agree. So if we zoom out a little bit and have a conversation on higher level e-commerce trends, are there any e-commerce trends coming that you're most excited about or that you're looking forward to? I think the trends that I've noticed recently is the commodification of digital marketing. And that, again, that used to be able to be a differentiator. or You could pretty much like get a business going by like raising some money and then using these platforms to grow. And the platforms were willing to kind of subsidize your growth because it was their own growth of market share. And then about a year or so ago, that really flipped. And the platforms are like, no, we're going to take the profits now. <laughs> like We're going to be profitable. Yeah. And so you saw these DTC brands, like I think really struggling that their customer acquisition engine wasn't as profitable as it used to be. So I think like what I'm really excited about is I do think that there's a rejuvenation of the social channels. I think this sort of toxicness of them, I'm at least my experience over the last month is that they've gotten way less toxic. You know, even Walt Mossberg is back on Facebook, you know, that's a big deal. <laughs> All right. Yep. That's so a good sign. I think that the potential of those channels never got fully realized of as far as like really being able to connect with people and brands in an authentic way and have that follow through to your business. And I kind of feel like that might be what we're going to actually experience now where the targeting is so good, the relevancy is so high and the community aspect is getting less toxic because of just people are not wanting to be assholes right now, I think as much. Yeah. Which is a plus. Yeah. And I think the platforms, I hope they'll take a little more responsibility too in this moment and go like, okay, this isn't just about an election. This is like life or death now. Like we can't allow like such misinformation and just toxic behavior because like it's costing lives. So anyway, I I see this sort of like perfect storm there of like social actually becoming the commercial channel that it never really realized in the past. Mm -hmm. And so that's one that I'm pretty excited about. It's obviously like yeah. the only way we can reach people right now. <laughs> like, yeah, I think that's, um, you know, the ability to like pull it through to your actual business is getting really, really good. So that's probably one that I'm, I'm excited about. And then I, I think also like for us, like the integration with our app and just that part of the digital experience and connecting the online to the in-app I just had a great experience buying a printer and like using the app to set the printer up and having ink on really? it. Yeah. Which printer? <laughs> I mean, I don't want to shill for another company, but H- I bought an HP printer and, uh-huh. you know, they forced me to set it up with the app, which I was like super annoyed by at first. But then I was like, wait, yeah. this is actually really cool. Like, it's just going to measure the ink and send me the new ink when I want it. Like, yes, please do that. Like, I hate you oh, know, finding great. out that I need to order ink. So I think like this integration of IoT devices and the app component with the commerce component, like I'm super excited about that for us. I think like, mm-hmm. you know, we've taken a lot of steps in that direction, but I think people are going to get more and more comfortable with it because it's actually going to be a good experience. 
So those are two that I see. Yeah, completely agree. Yeah. And especially the first one, I've seen a slow shift to brands kind of turning into media companies and not relying as heavily on certain platforms because I know a lot of brands that have been relying on Amazon so heavily. Well, now that Amazon's shifting to, okay, well, here's what we view as essential and here's what's going to get shipped out. And I think a lot of brands are going to rethink relying on those platforms and instead maybe think about how they can, you know, rely on themselves more and promote their content on their own a little bit more. So yeah, two really good points. All right. So I think we only have a couple minutes, so I don't want to ask you too many things. And actually, maybe we should just shift right over to the lightning round just to respect your time. So the lightning round is when I ask quick questions and you have to just say whatever's top of mind and you only get one minute or less to answer the question. Oh my God. I was not aware of the lightning round. Okay. I'm excited. Dun, dun, dun. I want to do a couple push-ups. All right. I'm ready. Yeah. Do some push-ups, do some deep breaths, just shake it out of it. It's just for fun. But yeah, whatever just first comes top of mind. So we'll do some easy ones first and then we'll do a hard one last. So what's up next on your reading list? Uh, no, The Last Kid Left by Rosecrans Baldwin. What's up next on your podcast or Audible queue? Stay Free, The Story of the Clash and Music Exists. That's a podcast that I'm listening to. It's just Chuck Klosterman and one of the guys from The Ringer. And they, they don't talk about specific music. It's like music concepts in general. It's really, I like it. Oh, cool. And you have a art background. Do you think everyone would like that podcast or is that more like Dimitri specific? If you like music, I think you'll like it. I mean, they talk about like, why do bands change? Why do bands change their style? Like that'll be a topic they'll talk about and and they'll be like, okay, ACDC never changes, but this band did, you know, so it's that kind of thing. It's just like hanging out with your friends talking about music, but your friends are really smart. Okay. (laughs) That sounds cool. I like that. All right. What's up next on your Netflix or Hulu queue? Oh man. I started watching Black AF, which is the new show from the guy who created Blackish. And it is me too. It is so yeah. funny. Oh my God. Like I'm basically yep. can't wait. I just to, started like, last yeah, night. I can't wait to just like go like binge that thing. And I like Insecure just started again, which I love that show. And My Brilliant Friend, which is on HBO, which is the Elena Ferrante books. Okay. Every episode I'm dying when that comes out. So those are my those are my picks. Cool. I'll have to check out that last one. I haven't heard of it. What's up next on your travel destinations after we're allowed to go out into the world again? I want to see my parents. That's definitely like... Where are they? They're in DC. I just want to see my friends. Like It's like it's less destinational for me. I lived in New York for a long time. Like I want to go back to New York. Mm -hmm. I love that city. I love so many people there. It's been through such a hard time. Like I want to go there. We had dreamed of going to Japan like before this. So that's definitely going to happen at some point. Love going there. And my kids have never awesome. been there. So those are a couple spots. Yeah. Japan's great. That's definitely one of my favorite places I've been. So fun. The people are so nice there. Yeah. yeah just a good, very different environment. Did you do the hot spring baths? What are they called again? Anzen? Yeah. Did you do those? Yeah. I would go when I worked at Patagonia, I would go a bunch and it was a cool way to go there because we actually didn't spend any time in Tokyo. We'd go up to Hokkaido and go like skiing and go down to Chiba and like go surfing. And so the culture, like even outside of Tokyo is just so cool. Just everything is so considered and every experience is like thought through and yeah. Yeah. And everything's so clean Mm -hmm. and it just feels so safe. I mean, 
we were in, I think, Hakone area, and there's a bus system that goes around. And there was kids, and I swear they were only like five or four, getting on the bus by themselves, going to school. And I'm like, <laughs> oh my gosh, in America, like no parent would ever let you just walk all the way down the street, get on the bus by yourself. I mean, these kids were small, but then there, it actually just felt yeah. right <laughs> for some reason. Yeah. All right, the last one. So it's your job to stay ahead of expectations, your competition, all of that. In your opinion, what's up next for e-commerce pros? I think that you can't just be shipping boxes to people. I think that your site experience and your commercial experience, you've got to break the mold of like, pick a box on our website and this box will show up at your doorstep. Like, I just think that's not a competitive advantage. And it's just not a customer advantage. And you've got to figure out some other way of like engaging your customers that isn't about shipping and getting a box delivered to their doorstep. So it'll be different for every business, but I mean, I think obviously like subscriptions are interesting, but also just like the way that you decide what you want, you know, it's not navigating a bunch of little squares on a page, but really learning about me and understanding and what I need and offering me a solution versus like a box that's going to get shipped to my house. So I think this site experience and how that connects to either if you have an app or, or your CRM programs, like all that stuff, it's the paradigm is like just dead right now. And I think it's if you're not like disrupting that, then you're going to just be perceived as like, why am I, why am I bothered? Why would I bother shopping here? I can get a box shipped to my house by a lot of other companies. Yeah, completely agree. Well, you were very good at the lightning round. You really had answers right away. So yeah, nice <laughs> job there. But yeah, it's been a blast, Dimitri. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I know after this, I'm going to go and play all my Sono speakers and put on a little surround sound techno music going on to pump me up a bit for the rest of the day. So yeah, thanks for oh, popping that on. good. Yeah, it'll be a good rest of the day. Thanks so much. All right. Bye-bye. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.